0: Hey everybody, it is Wednesday, April 15th, 2020, and you're listening to an episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brett Like, and I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, and car whatever. On today's episode, we'll talk about uh, a bevy of automotive news. It's still pretty slow out there with uh, all of this that is going on. Uh, all over the world and uh but there's still some interesting things to talk about so uh we'll bounce some stories off of Hyundai and Kia, uh Toyota and Mazda, uh, as well as uh two from Cadillac that uh I think are worth discussing. In the car culture segment, uh we're going to talk about the new Mini Cooper in the United States, I call it the SE. Over in Europe, it's the Mini Cooper Electric. Uh, the initial reviews are coming out. People have some differing views on what range is good and what is not. And uh, it looks like at least, at least, at least, oh my gosh, based on some of the initial tests, uh, it sounds like the range is much better than what people are claiming. So all that and more will kind of get... Right into the news. So, as promised, we'll kick things off with Hyundai and Kia. Uh, there's been a couple of interesting reports that have come out in the past few days uh, about high performance vehicles from both brands. Uh, the first story, was about two days ago, uh, it sounds like the Hyundai Veloster N will be getting a brand new dual-clutch automated manual transmission, uh, that'll likely find its way into several other vehicles in the near future. Uh, if you're not familiar at all with the current dual-clutch setup that uh, Hyundai offers, as well as Kia in some of their vehicles, uh, it's a seven-speed dual-clutch automatic. Uh, it's an automated manual transmission. Uh, it is not a twin-clutch wet unit like what Volkswagen and Porsche and many other brands use. Uh, instead, it is a single-clutch unit, and, you know, having driven a car with that particular unit in it, it's fine. It's good enough. Uh, you got to give it a little bit of space, a little bit of time to kind of do what it needs to do, but this new twin clutch wet setup that's currently being at least talked about for the super high performance, uh, Veloster N and presumably the i30N over in Europe, uh, would add much faster, much smoother shifts, uh, and would also be an eight-speed unit that would add an extra gear, uh, to the set. Uh, what is interesting about that is that would, probably, presumably, indicate that an eight-speed dual-clutch automatic would be coming, uh, for the regular vehicles later on down the road. Uh, this unit would probably end up going in the Veloster, the N-series product first, and then make its way into the N-line cars, so things like the new Hyundai Sonata, uh, that would be this Hyundai Sonata N-line, uh, presumably that would find its way into the new Elantra N-line, um, but it's... Again, hard to know for sure. Uh, These leaked kind of stories don't really rely on a whole lot other than rumor and, you know, I think it kind of makes a good bit of sense uh, that Hyundai is looking into doing a next-gen platform for the car, uh, particularly since the car was so well-reviewed, but selling it primarily only with a manual transmission uh, cuts off some potential buyers, especially when so few people, especially here in the United States, know how to drive a stick. Uh, Having that automated manual really broadens the appeal. Now, the other Hyundai-Kia news uh, is that uh, it sounds like the Stinger GT, I don't know if you remember that car, it seems like people just generally aren't talking about it anymore, we will be getting a new twin-turbo V6. Uh, The current car uses a twin-turbo, I think it's a 3.3-liter unit. Uh, That engine's been kind of bouncing around between the Kia and Genesis brand for a little bit. Makes about, I think it's, what, a 350 horsepower or so. Uh, This new unit would be coming straight out of the GV80SU. the new g80 sedan uh, it's a 3.8 liter twin turbo v6 that makes uh or sorry it's a 3.5 liter twin turbo v6 sorry that makes 380 horsepower uh that would be a good performance boost on the stinger the stinger is definitely worthy of a couple updates at this point uh it's interesting when you kind of look at the trajectory that uh, this particular car has had where there was a lot of fanfare at least initially uh for the stinger. Things kind of fell off. The G70 came out based on the same chassis, wiped the floor with the Stinger in terms of overall development and refinement, Then you had the G80 and the G90 uh, get done, and now I think the pendulum is swinging back to Kia to get the Stinger uh, freshened up, or perhaps uh, even have a new generation vehicle in the not-too-distant future. Um, It's just the way things go with Hyundai and Kia. Each of the brands are kind of let to... uh, compete against one another. They're, they're encouraged to come up with interesting design and engineering, uh, solutions for each other that, uh, continue to ratchet up, uh, what do you want to call it? The, the stakes for each brand. I mean, you know, you look at, uh, the way in which technology, at least in terms of, like, infotainment systems, is a good indicator of where things have gone. Uh, The 10.25-inch unit debuted in the Telluride and the Palisade, then it showed up in the Soul, now it's in the Elantra. It's, like, kind of just propagating itself across the Hyundai lineup, and now it's going to make its way back into older vehicles that are getting interior refreshes and things like that. Uh, It's just an interesting way to do it, and every car, you know, builds off what they learned with the previous effort. So uh, we've got the uh, Hyundai optar excuse me the kia optima coming to the u.s very soon uh that learns based on all of the lessons that the hyundai uh sonata has had in the past several months of up to almost i guess a year now which is kind of weird to think about uh and you know it's just a way that they just keep progressing as two different companies and that's always probably a good way to do it and it's a way that more brands should probably be doing things uh but it isn't always the case So, moving on to Japanese car news. Uh, Up at the top, we talked about uh, Mazda and Toyota. Uh, A report came across several different automotive websites earlier this week. Again, rumors without any major declaration of things for sure happening. Uh, It sounds as though Mazda is developing a rear-wheel drive chassis architecture uh, that will be paired with an all-new inline-six engine uh, that is said to produce somewhere around 300-ish horsepower. Uh, this new chassis and engine, uh, will likely be shared with Toyota. Uh, sounds as though this is going to replace both the Mazda 6, and if I'm making assumptions here, this will probably underpin maybe the next generation version of the Lexus IS, maybe even a next-gen version of the Lexus GS. Uh, Again, nothing is really confirmed, and we're just kind of making guesses based on a lot of different things, but it's very exciting. Uh, Mazda hasn't produced a front-engine rear-wheel drive car uh, for the American market in really quite some time. The last one was the RX-8, which, of course, was a very niche vehicle with a powertrain platform that likes to detonate upon itself uh, when it just gives up the ghost after 115,000 miles. Uh, It's... It's not exactly a high-volume seller, and to think about the idea that Mazda wants to replace, well, maybe not a volume seller like the Mazda 6, but a long-time sales contender, maybe, is a good way to put it, uh, for a more niche vehicle, uh, is indicative both of one Nissan, or excuse me, not Nissan, but Mazda's commitment to sporty driving dynamics and, you know, really you know, honing that in. They they talk about how each of their vehicles has a sporty soul within it, and, you know, this, having the MX-5, you know, that's one thing. Having a sporty sedan is another, and, you know, one hopes that maybe that same chassis would be developed into other crossovers and SUVs because that's what happens. And, you know, Mazda's stuff that they have is the most fun to drive in their category. Nobody is going up against that in any way, shape, or form, but uh, losing a big mass market sedan to a new rear wheel drive sporty sedan uh really seems like an interesting move and you know also points to the fact that Mazda has been trying to go significantly up market with their low volume vehicles no the cars aren't particularly expensive but they want to at least encourage you in some respects to consider you know, the Mazda 3, the Mazda 6 against the, you know, Audi A3, the BMW 3 Series, stuff like that. Uh, And this would be a very good way to do it. Uh, What I'm curious about is whether or not the car will get bigger or smaller with a rear wheel drive architecture. Uh, As it stands, the Mazda 6 is already quite big. It's very long. Uh, So it's a little bit bigger than a 3 Series, but not quite a 5 Series kind of thing. Uh, And that would be an interesting move to see it kind of realign it uh, in terms of where I guess, I don't know, they'd think the sales might end up actually being. On the flip side, Toyota, same kind of thing. If Toyota's going to be using this platform as a Lexus, uh, what's the likelihood that we see a next-gen version, uh, maybe replacing the Avalon, or I wouldn't guess seeing it replace the Camry, but, you know, Toyota has talked about, uh, having more fun and energetic and interesting cars in their lineup, uh, and I think some kind of rear-wheel drive performance sedan, makes some level of sense uh i i I had said on twitter it's time to bring back the (laughs) cresettia and uh, i think there is some truth to that uh bmw uh the bmw based supra has been great uh you know the the Mazda-based Yaris cars have been great. Uh, you know, the FRS and the BRZ and the Toyota 86 have all been great. Uh, when Toyota collaborates with other brands, they can make some really cool stuff. And I think, you know, having a larger performance car in their lineup makes some level of sense. I don't know. It just seems like a smart move to may- be making in the near future, and you know maybe hopefully they can get around to doing that. Uh, one other bit of Asian car news is from Honda. Uh, Honda has been making the 3.5 liter V6, uh, for what feels like forever. Uh, that engine, I think, dates back to the early 2000s. Uh, the current iteration produces about 280-ish horsepower, uh, and everything from the Honda Pilot, on up to the Acura MDX, it's in the the TLX, it's it's in all these different cars in there. Uh and it, a report came out earlier the other day talking about how it sounds like Honda will be producing a 3 liter twin turbo V6 for the next generation TLX sedan. Uh this engine would slot in above a 2 liter twin turbo setup that is related to the engine in the Civic Type R and the Honda Accord. This new V6 would be mated to an all-wheel drive system and produce well above the current 280 horsepower. Now, what exactly that means, I think, is somewhat questionable because more than likely this powertrain is going to be put, you know, in the MDX. I wouldn't be surprised to see it in the Next Generation Pilot. I wouldn't be surprised to see it in a lot of different vehicles at Honda. And if this thing is producing significantly more than 350 horsepower, uh, I don't really feel like that has a lot of broad appeal. That being said, turbocharged engines can be tuned up and down a mountain of power. Uh, so, you know, maybe you do a TLX Type S, uh, at 400 plus horsepower. Maybe you have a more civilian-civilian normalized version, uh, at, you know, 320, 350, somewhere around there, uh, with more of a focus on torque. It's not out of the ordinary. Uh, but that being said, you know, it is kind of sad to see the 3.5 liter V6 going. Uh, it's been around for such, a long time. It's an engine that's known to be quite reliable, even though Honda and Acura have matched it to horrifically terrible uh, transmissions over the past 20 years. Uh, You know, it's it's a good platform, and it's just sad to see it go, but I'm excited to hear about what this new possibility might be of a turbocharged platform coming out of Honda, because they know how to make engines, they have a lot of experience doing turbocharged platforms, especially with their Indy cars as of late. Uh, seeing some of that technology potential potentially trickle down into the street cars uh, could be pretty cool. Now, last up, we did talk about Cadillac, and we've got two stories from Cadillac. Uh, the first one is that they have a deeper clarification. Of what's going on with the CT4V and CT5V. Uh, about a year ago now, I guess, uh, it was announced that CT4V and CT5V were going to be performance versions of the CT4 and CT5, but not be the top trim, crazy, insane performance cars that the V, uh, has indicated at least for the past 20 years. Uh the CT4V and CT5V have a what is it a 2.7 liter twin turbo inline 4 in the CT4 and a 3 liter twin turbo V6 uh in the uh CT5V. I think it's a 3 liter twin turbo. I might be getting mistaken there. Nevertheless, you know, they're making well under 400 horsepower. Uh this new performance branding that they're going to be using is attaching the Blackwing name, uh, which was originally developed for the CT6V, which had a purpose-built 5-liter twin-turbo V8 uh, that produced, I think it was 550 horsepower. just under what the 6.2-liter supercharged unit from Chevrolet was doing uh, at the time. They only built like a handful of these V8s. Uh, It was a great engine. Everybody loved it, thought it was a magnificent piece, but without a car to put it in, uh Cadillac has basically shelved the design. Uh I think they struck up a deal with one performance car manufacturer and I'm completely blanking on who it is. Uh they're going to be buying Blackwing V8s for their special supercar thing. Uh so that engine will live on for a short time. Uh but the engine just doesn't fit in the CT4 and CT5 and they can't continue using it but the name is still usable. So the CT4 V Blackwing and CT5 V Blackwing will live on as the top trim uh performance cars. So think of that like a uh, AMG E63 S Black. That would be basically the equivalent that they're going for for the name, or the Mercedes-Benz M4 CSL or whatever. However those things all work these days, uh, this would be the equivalent to that. Uh, At least in the CT5V, it's the 6.2 liter supercharged V8 uh, that we've known from Chevrolet and Cadillac for quite some time. Uh, 550 plus horsepower, 550 plus pound-feet of torque. Uh, It's going to be a fat power band in that car. It's going to make it quick uh, it's on a chassis that is known to be quite agile, uh, the CT5e, V, am I'm imagining, will be a very good M5 competitor. The CT4V, on the other hand, uh, I think it's getting, I'm totally bl- blanking out on which engine it's getting. It's getting a good one, is a good way to put it, uh, better than the 2.7 liter twin turbo inline-four. That being said, as I've said many times in this podcast, I think that is still the one to get with the truck-based engine, uh, it's a diesel power plant. It just makes me wish that Cadillac would build a wagon version of the CT4 and equip it with that powertrain. That thing just goes and goes and goes like a locomotive, and it gets really good gas mileage, too. Even in the big, huge Silverado sedan or pickup truck, it gets, like, fantastic highway miles per gallon. I just think in a, in a traditional sporty car, uh, even if it's just a small sports wagon, it just makes sense. GM, Do it if you're listening, but I digress. At least we know what's going on with the Blackwing platform, uh, at least for the time period, and at least we know what the next generation of high-performance Cadillacs will be. Now, last up in terms of Cadillac stories, uh, it is about the, uh, well, the Escalade, the top trim vehicle of all GM vehicles. Uh, As much as GM would love to say that the C8 Corvette is the halo car for the company, uh, and in many ways it is, the Escalade has traditionally been the top trim halo car uh, in previous years. Uh, As it stands, the Escalade uh, is one of the most expensive cars you can buy from General Motors at the moment, uh, and the new Escalade will be starting at about $1,000 more than the outgoing model. Trim cars are going to start around $75,000, which I suddenly realized isn't that expensive when you consider that uh, nicely equipped Tahoe's, Yukon's, Yukon Denali's all kind of kick in right around uh, that sixty-five, dollars 70000 price point. Uh, to get the big, huge LCD panel uh, and a little bit more of an upgraded interior, you've got to spend a couple of thousand dollars more, uh, but in the end, you know, for less than eighty grand. You're getting a pretty nice full-size SUV that's not only going to be able to tow, but haul your family in comfort, too. Uh, Cadillac really seems to kind of know what they want to do with the Escalade platform uh, heading uh, into the rest of 2020. Uh, Now, the weird thing is, is that Cadillac is doing the thing that they've done with other cars in their lineup, where they split the vehicle into luxury and performance options, Uh, I have to admit that I'm not a very big fan of this way of doing things, uh, simply because it really muddies the water in terms of what you get and what you don't get with each truck. Uh, the luxury trim, the baseline one, is the one that starts at about $75-ish thousand dollars. Uh, there's for a couple grand more, there's the sport trim. Basically, the big difference is, is you're gonna get, uh, the fake carbon fiber, you're gonna get the blacked out big open air grill, the mesh grill uh, versus the luxury one that's going to have a little bit more wood. Uh, It's going to have a lot more chrome. Uh, look traditionally much more like how you'd think an Escalade would or should look. Uh, you can step up from there into a a luxury premium, uh, then there's a sport premium, and then there's a luxury sport premium. It's way too many words to describe what's going on, uh, with each trim level. Uh, top, tippy top models of the Escalade are going to start, uh, at 99995 uh, for the fully loaded variants of each. Uh, those are still are, are going to include a 6.2 liter V8, uh, mated to a 10-speed automatic, and there will be an optional diesel, if I remember correctly, later on down the road. Uh, you know, Escalades are Escalades. They're going to do Escalade things. Uh, it, they look nice, at least based on what I've seen initially and, in, probably drawing some conclusions based on the 2021 GMC Yukon Denali that I saw at the Chicago Auto Show, Uh, the Escalade should be quite nice. So, that basically kind of runs down what's going on, at least in terms of automotive news, and after a short little bump, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the Mini Cooper SE. So the 2020 Mini Cooper SE, that's the Mini Cooper Electric uh, as known elsewhere, is at least starting to hit press fleets as we speak. Uh, The car is based on the current Mini Cooper platform that we all know and love. Uh, It is a three-door hatchback, so you've got two doors on the right and left and one in the back that lifts up. Uh, It is basically taking that platform and integrating the motor and battery from the BMW i3 uh, into a Mini. What makes this car particularly special is that it is kind of an amalgamation of design and intent and data that BMW has been gathering over the past decade or so uh, between different variations of both Mini electric test cars as well as the i3 and the i8 Uh, the big takeaway here is that the Mini Cooper SE is meant to be extremely affordable because Mini really pulled back on, uh, some of the things that you would normally get with other luxury trim, uh, electric cars. Uh, By that, I mean the car starts at about $20,000 with the federal tax credit, which is an absolute steal. Uh, The car includes a lot of niceties, not a ton of things, but enough niceties to make it uh, a sensible purchase in many parts of the United States. Uh, But the main thing is is that the car is only rated for 115 miles of electric range. Uh, That is significantly shorter than a comparably priced uh, let's say, a Nissan LEAF, that can go about 150 miles. Uh, a Chevy Bolt can go over 200. Uh, you've got the Hyundai Kona Electric and the Nero Electric that can go over 230 miles of electric range. All of this being said, uh, most of those cars, with exception to the LEAF, are significantly more expensive. Uh, the Kona and the Nero, I think, are closer to $40,000 in total price, uh, and you can't buy them in many parts of the country, uh, the Bolt, of course, is well over $40,000, um, there's just not very, or there's not really a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm trying to say here? There, there There's not a lot of uh, incentive for people of reasonable means to buy cars like that simply because, uh, they do too much, and they cost too much, and in the end, you know, one used a couple years from now is going to be a really good deal, Uh, but in some cases, they're still going to cost more than what a brand new Mini SE is going to be. Uh, So, the initial reviews are out. Uh, It sounds like these cars are a ton of fun to drive. Uh, They are, you know, still incorporating a lot of the Mini intricacies that you have come to expect from this brand over the years. So, you know, there's a lot of Union Jack kind of stuff hidden within the vehicle. Uh, it's still a ton of fun to toss into corners. It still accelerates like a mongoose and just takes off. Uh, no, it's not going to be quite as quick as a Mini Cooper S around every single track, uh, but that is the reason why they still call it the Mini Cooper SE. It's because it still handles well. It rides a little firmly. Um, it can accelerate just as quick as a Mini Cooper S from what I can understand from a standstill, uh, but that juice kind of runs out initially after probably 45 or 60 miles an hour. Uh... Early things, early impressions from people that I've taken from online is that, you know, it feels like a Mini. If you know a Mini, there's not going to be anything different there. Uh, If you know what to expect in a Mini, you're not going to be disappointed. Uh, Things that are kind of not good are that uh, the car doesn't have Android Auto uh, compatibility as of right now. It's only Apple CarPlay. Uh, BMW, I think, is fixing that in some of their own cars, and since the infotainment system in the Mini is based on a BMW system, uh, chances are we will, we will be getting Android Auto in the not-too-distant future, but how all that is going to work, you know, who knows? I'm throwing up my hands and a hand gesture you can't see right now. Uh, the other main takeaway is that, uh, there are still some trim things that are hidden away, uh, in different trim levels that greatly inflate the price once you step away, uh, from the base trim car. If my memory serves correctly, I think it's, like, it rockets up from, like, you know, I think the base trim is, what, twenty seven thousand dollars or $30,000, I think, is what it is. Um, you're looking at, you know, pretty decent things, uh, but, you know, to get things like leather, to get things like, a, you know, I don't know heads-up display, yada, 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 all these crazy things, uh, you're knocking on the door of $40,000 pretty quick, and you basically erase, uh, what the car was meant to do, because the higher trim models do have less range, they do have less performance overall, uh, but the base trim one, I think, is still the one to get. Now, the thing I mentioned earlier is that the range is not great. It's only rated for 115 miles of, uh, distance here in the United States, and, Uh, at least based on some tests that were done out west in what I would consider optimal conditions, around 70 to 72 degrees. Uh, It wasn't some stop-and-go traffic. It did go up and down some mountain roads outside of Los Angeles. Uh, The guy who I'm thinking of... God, I can't remember who it was. They said that they were able to charge it to full, near enough full. I think it was like 96%. They drove the car. They went 115 miles and got back home. Uh, and at least based on the range that they were getting, uh, the car would have been able to go an extra 20, I think it was 27 miles. So considering that the car, roughly speaking, might theoretically have a range of 150 miles, uh, that's a pretty cheap and very efficient car. Uh, that kind of puts things like the Nissan Leaf, which are not very much fun to drive, uh, at a significant disadvantage, at least from my perspective. That being said, the Leaf does have passenger space for four people and a boot large enough to carry their stuff. The Mini Cooper SE does not. Uh, the Nissan Leaf is also built by Nissan, uh, so it'll likely be a little more reliable than the Mini will long-term, but that being said, uh, because you are avoiding the, uh, what is it, a BMW, uh, sourced, twin-turbo, is it a twin-turbo, single-turbo, three-cylinder engine, probably going to be a little more reliable long-term, uh, going with the electric model, Uh, and you don't have to worry about the fancy, pantsy transmissions and other things. I've just had too many friends have nightmares with Mini Coopers. I never recommend buying one, uh, unless you know what you're doing, and, uh, this Mini Cooper SE seems to be a little more reasonable in terms of things, all things considered. Now, that being said, uh, press cars are out right now. Uh, last I had spoken to someone who worked at MINI, uh, which was in late January, early February, uh, was that, uh, they're not expecting to get these cars for another two months. Uh, and with the coronavirus pandemic going on, who the hell knows when they're going to show up here in the United States. Uh, if that initial, interpretation was late May, early June for the first initial models. Um, I guess now that's probably going to be August or September. Uh, but, you know, things can change, uh, and, you know, things could slide around. But I think, you know, if you're out there looking for an electric car these days, uh, options are getting weird. Uh, I, I you know, locked up inside the house, I've been doing a lot of car shopping myself. Uh, it's something I can do to keep myself busy, and, uh, I took a look at Plug in electric vehicles and plug in hybrid electric vehicles the other day, and came up with a number of options uh, that seem to have gotten significantly cheaper within the past six months. Uh, Chevy Volts in particular seem to be dropping uh, by two or three thousand dollars each right now, especially with gasoline being so cheap. Uh, I was able to find newer Nissan Leaf, so the 2013 and up models uh, had better. Uh, battery technology. The 2014 and 2015 models had the top one that's apparently supposed to last the longest. Uh, I found models with well under 100,000 miles. I think it was like under 50,000 miles that were used for under 15 grand now, which is getting to be pretty cheap. And I guess the question then becomes: Do you want a modern, brand new Mini Cooper with all these tax incentives that gets it down to 20-ish thousand dollars, or would you rather buy a used Nissan? that has a little more range, maybe a little bit better build quality, and that's with huge (laughs) air quotation marks right there, uh, and a little bit more of a reputation for being able to hold its charge and other things, uh, you know, the Nissan might make more sense to some folks, but with the Mini being so cheap, uh, it really kind of pokes a hole in the idea of a used electric car. And, really, in a much broader sense, I think it really pokes a hole in the idea of buying a used BMW i3. I like the i3 a lot. I I drove one last year. I loved it to pieces. It was so much fun. Uh, it's a great car to sit in, both front and rear. I love how open it is. Uh, but the reality is, of course, that the BMW i3 uh, has a monocoque chassis that's made out of carbon fiber that's not easy to fix. Um, it might be a little bit more resistant to corrosion uh, with road salt and other things here in Michigan, but the grand thing is that we really don't know. It's still a largely unproven technology, and, uh, you know, range is okay. It's about 100-ish miles. Uh, the Mini Cooper SE is going to be a little bit better, and used i3s typically run between 15 to 18000 sometimes up to $22,000 if you have the range extender. Uh, I think the Mini might still be the better way to go, Uh, because even with the range extender on the i3, you're only looking at 130, 150 miles, uh, and it's still not the most optimum way to go around because you're still burning gasoline once you get past that initial 100 or so electric miles. So, yeah, the Mini Cooper SE is a very interesting car these days, especially where we're at in 2020. Uh, I'm hoping that we do see them in the not-too-distant future. I'm hoping that they are not priced to god knows where when they first show up. I hope that we do get a bevy of the actual cheap cars here because I think for a lot of people, especially my age, in their early 30s, you know, maybe people who are just out of college who need to get their first car, who have a job in the city, that are doing a lot of stop-and-go commuting, uh, this car would be perfect and you can still take it up and down a mountain road and have a ton of fun on the weekend, Uh, but, you know, people rarely, 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 rarely drive more than 40 miles a day. And for you to be able to do that, come home, trickle charge it overnight, you're going to be pretty much topped off by the time you go to work the next day. And that just makes so much more sense than buying, you know, a Tesla for 50 plus thousand dollars that has 400 miles of range that, you know, you're only going to scratch at. If you need to go further than 115 miles, just rent a truck. It's probably going to be more cost effective long term than buying a Tesla and paying that much overall. I'm sure there's math that proves me wrong somewhere around down the line, but uh, for right now, it just seems like the smarter way to go. So, as I mentioned in the previous segment, I've been doing a lot of car shopping, and as another entry into the how was Brad going to replace his Ford Fiesta that he lost back in November of 2019... Uh, there've been some other considerations that have come up as of late. Uh, if you recall in the previous edition of this, I talked at length about the Infinity EX35. Uh, I've been trying to track one down locally to go look at and drive, and the last one I attempted to go see, uh, was gone basically within a day of it going up online, uh, and that was a little disappointing. It was the only one that was within a 10 to 15 minute drive of my house, Uh, I still have an eye for the EX35, all things considered. I like the idea of something that is still car-sized and shaped. Yes, it is a little bit taller than a G35 sedan, but it is shorter and is meant to be a little more sporty overall. Uh, The idea of a 300 horsepower V6 uh, with a, you know, somewhat sporty-oriented chassis uh, does get the cockles moving, uh, as it were. But the main takeaway, at least lately, has been that I think having a vehicle shared between myself and my SO that does have all-wheel drive for the wintertime does seem like a smart idea. We do live in Michigan. We just got snow today here in April, of all things. Not that it made travel treacherous, because you're not supposed to leave your house anyway, but, uh, you know, things get weird in Michigan sometimes, and... You know, the other kind of backup vehicle that continued to place on my list has been the Toyota Highlander and its uh, platform mate, the Lexus RX. Uh, those two continue to kind of bounce around in the part pantheon of ideas that I have. Uh, the, the Highlander, I think, is more the one I would want to go with just because they're a known quantity, they're reliable, they're all over the place. I can go to AutoZone and pick up parts for it. Uh, It just seems like a smarter thing. Uh, As a related platform, the Venza has been on the list as well. I like the Venza a lot simply because it looks more like a car. Um, That being said, uh, I've heard from a lot of people that they are very loud inside and that they rattle a lot. So again, another one of those situations where I need to go drive it and see if I actually like it. Uh, But the new vehicle that has seemingly come out of nowhere, at least in terms of my current obsessions for looking for things, has been the Mitsubishi Montero. Now, many of you might recognize the Montero as a vehicle that some folks from uh, Hooniverse and Jalopnik have been driving the wheels off for the past year. Uh, They have talked about having vintage Monteros that are, you know, easy to work on, uh, you know, Relatively reliable, all things considered, but the nightmare stories that they've talked about, at least in terms of parts availability, uh, has not been super great, in my opinion. Uh, But I still hear a lot of good things about the Montero, and I've been looking around uh, to see where they're at, and I just read all these car reviews from people who've owned them and hear all these great things about how reliable the platform is, how capable it is in the snow and off-road, and it kind of, again, got those cockles turning, uh, from one end of the spectrum with a very sporty, uh, quote-unquote crossover, uh, to a full-size quote-unquote luxury SUV, uh, the Montero really seems to have kind of captured my attention. Now, specifically, I'm looking at the final generation Montero that we got here in the United States, uh, which was made from 2001 to 2006, uh, the initial run from 2001 to 2003, 3 uh had a 3.5 liter V6, the later ones had a better 3.8 liter unit that was designed for the North American market. Uh from what I understand, the early ones uh from 01 to 03 are not very reliable uh in terms of having uh issues with oil, and I think something with the valve train uh in the heads of the engines, uh they just kind of get gross and gunked up. And if you're staying on top of your oil changes and other things, Uh, normally that can be avoided, but, uh, it sounds like a lot of them really kind of missed out on that. The 04 and up models, so 04, 05, and 06, are apparently much better, um, and at least in terms of what I've been finding online, they are worth a lot more money. Uh, I've been looking around, uh, and there are two for sale here in West Michigan uh, that have caught my attention. One uh, is for sale in Rockford, which is just north of Grand Rapids. Uh, That particular unit is an 06 model with 140, or sorry, 150 some odd thousand miles. They want like $5,700 for it, which I think is crazy. But that being said... Uh, the interior is in immaculate condition. It does have the sunroof, uh, the large sunroof. This is kind of the start, the tipping point for the idea of a panoramic sunroof. And this one goes pretty much edge to edge across the top. and goes pretty deep behind the driver's, uh, or at least the front seat arrangement. Uh, it looks great. Uh, but that being said, this uh, was also the time frame when people started to want DVD players in their cars. And so Mitsubishi in the final year of 2006 offered it where you either got the sunroof and no DVD player, or you could option a DVD player that had a roof-mounted LCD screen that flipped down, and that would eliminate the sunroof. And so this particular unit has the sunroof, but the owner who had had it previously swapped out the front headrest to have dual DVD screens, presumably for their children, who rode in the back. Upside is, that would make the car much better for long-distance drives. Uh, I... I you know, would need to go look at the thing to actually see, but in my mind, it drives me crazy because I would want the actual stock headrests. Uh the, they had the open hole headrests uh still at this point in time on the Montero. I just think they look nicer. Um overall, you know, it's in pretty good shape, at least is what it looks like from photographs. Uh the vehicle history port seems pretty solid on it. Uh the price I think is admittedly a, l- excuse me, a little high. Uh but you know, that has a lot to do with the mileage that's on it, and less about the way it was actually maintained, if that makes some level of sense. There are two other ones uh, that I've had my eye on. One is uh, here locally as well in Muskegon, which is about an hour, give or take, northwest of Grand Rapids. Uh, this particular model is a 2004 unit, so it's one of the early quote-unquote good ones. Uh, instead of being uh, the two-tone sand in beige like the one in Rockford, this one is a two-tone uh, white and gray, which I think looks really, really classy, all things considered. Uh, overall appearance of the body looks really solid uh, in a sense. It has spent its entire life here in West Michigan. It was owned uh, out on the lakeshore in a town called Grand Haven. Grand Haven is a very wealthy, uh, upper-class neighborhood, so that makes me assume that the person who had it took very good care of it. Uh, but there's also the possibility that it was a cottage vehicle, uh, because there are a lot of private homes out there that are not occupied year-round. This particular unit has just under 100,000 miles on it, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, It being a 2004 car, uh, it is way, way, way under on miles. Uh, But that being said, you know, charging $6,500, $6,700 for it Uh, It doesn't seem like the most economic thing to do, especially in these times of the coronavirus. Uh, Interior-wise, it is pretty much spotless. It has all the stock head units, all of the stock trim. Uh, They even left all of the warning stickers on the interior bits of the car, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, But there are some small tears in the driver's side seat. Uh, These leather seats that Mitsubishi has seem to be either in really good shape in some vehicles or really poor shape in others. Uh, this one suffers from the problem where, uh, the leather that rolls down the side of the seat that goes down towards, like, the electric controls, uh, has, like, three small tears in it. Now, is that a deal breaker? No, uh, but compared to the one with not quite double the miles, but with an extra 60,000 miles on it in Rockford, uh, that one has no tears. And, you know, what does that signify, uh, to other people? Uh, that also being said, the one that's in Muskegon, the white and silver one, uh, it does not have its, uh, trail bags. I don't really know what you want to call them. Uh, Mitsubishi kicked these things out the door with, uh, emergency equipment that would go in, like, this little netted pouch thing, uh, in the rear tailgate. Uh, this one does not have that, at least pictured in that netting in the rear tailgate. May have gotten thrown under the rear seat storage area. Uh, but... That has me go, you know, again, wanting to find something that is in the best condition possible, uh, but it is as close to stock as possible, uh, kind of grinds my gears a little bit, because, you know, now I gotta track down these little parts somewhere online, which I'm sure I could find somewhere. The only other one I've seen close by in a relatively good condition, uh, with a decent price is for sale just outside of Chicago. Uh, That particular one is also a 2006, like the one in Rockford. Uh, This one is silver uh, and gray, if I remember correctly. Uh, Inside and out, looks like it's in really good shape. Uh, Looks like it's been really well maintained mechanically. Uh, I don't think it had any accidents, if I remember correctly. The one in Muskegon, I think, had a rear fender bender in a parking lot, which is not a big deal because probably with the Montero, it did more damage than it had damage done to it. Uh, but the one Chicago, again, looks pretty good. All things considered, it looks like it's it's held up pretty well. It's got just over 115,000 miles, uh, but some of the photos aren't done super well, and it looks like there's some corrosion in the door jams, and that really spooks me quite a bit because uh, it sounds like these Monteros are fairly rust-prone if you don't take care of them, and uh, if that is the case, you know, I would hate to you know, spend $6,000 on something that's going to fall apart in, you know, five years. That would not be a good way to go. Now, buying a car is never a good investment, but, you know, you'd want to keep these things running because they are cool. Uh, they, I think, are one of the better looking, uh, large SUVs from that era. Uh, and, you know, there seems to be a very dedicated fan base with these things. Uh, Taking a look at classifieds across the rest of the country, uh, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, ones that are the base trim XLS model, uh, those have the cloth interior, so it doesn't have the leather, but it still has the good four-wheel drive equipment. Uh, those ones are, like, less than half the price of the leather limited models, uh, which is just insane how different they are. Uh, you know, well-taken-care-of ones here in Michigan seem to run the gamut between, Five to seven thousand dollars, you know all things considered, but you go out west and things are a completely different picture uh some states uh like Oregon in particular, you can find some for really cheap thirty five hundred bucks thirty eight hundred bucks uh, there is one that 's been for sale online for more than a month now uh they 've had it priced as high as almost twelve thousand dollars for a blue I think it was a two thousand six model. Uh, it only had, I think, 110,000 miles on it. it. looks like it's been really meticulously maintained. It has all of the service records. It's a one-owner car. It's that kind of dream scenario that you love to think of. But paying that much money for a Mitsubishi Montero? <laughs> You'd have to be crazy. Now, I saw the other day they knocked the price down by $1,000. So now it's $11,000. Still insane, uh, how much they're charging for this when you consider something that's only in maybe... You know, if we're, if we're rating this on a scale of 10, if this blue truck is a 10 out of 10, uh, you know, is it worth $10,000? I don't think so. Is it worth $8,000? Maybe, uh, because this truck that's in Muskegon is, by all sense of measure, probably at least an 8 out of 10, uh, and that one's worth six and a half, and it, it really seems like it's a, an interesting curve on how these things are priced. But, uh, you know, we'll kind of see. It, it's, it's tough because, you know, on the one hand, I'm obsessed with this vehicle right now. The truth of the matter is, I could go look at it and drive it and decide I absolutely hate it and never want to see one again. Um, the other simple thing is that, you know, until I know what a solid job <laughs> looks like, uh, any time from now, uh, the idea of a four-wheel drive vehicle that can, you know, Climb mountains probably isn't the most practical thing when, you know, at most, I would probably have to have a 15-mile commute uh, total each day. So we shall see what's going on. But hey, if you want to do something fun and interesting, I tell you what, pick a car, any car, research it nationwide, and see where prices are at. Because, man, it is wild to see how different things are. Like, the number of ones that are for sale right now in Washington, Oregon, and California are pretty high, the prices are all over the board, uh, and compared to the Midwest, yeah, they're like, more likely to be rust-free, but is it worth two to three grand more in some instances? And I, I really don't see it that way, uh, at all. (laughs) Well, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast for Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. Uh, If you want to follow along with previous episodes of this show, you can do so by downloading the Anchor app or listening along uh, with iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so much more. Uh, Just search for the Salvage Title Podcast and you should be able to find it. Uh, We basically publish these right now uh, as news comes along. Uh, Everything has slowed down to a halt with coronavirus. I literally have nothing better to do, and yet, uh, you know, when you're getting maybe one interesting story a day, uh, you can't exactly pull a show together. So uh, I am hoping... Maybe not this week. We'll see. Who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of days. Uh, I do want to do... A Salvage Title Car Buyer's Guide, and I was thinking about this, and, like, everybody's doing this right now, and all the different automotive blogs, and all the different automotive websites, and all the automotive YouTubes, and blah, 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 uh, everybody's, you know, how much car can you get for $38,000, the average average new car transaction price in the U.S., uh, how much car can you get for $20,000, so on and so forth, it's a fun game, it keeps you entertained, it keeps the brain working, uh, For me, you know, I'm thinking of this in terms of, you know, what kind of car should you get if you are this? What kind of car should you get if you are that? I don't know if that's a more practical way to break down some of the new vehicles that are coming out. And the other hard part is that some of these new vehicles that are coming out, uh, we're not going to be able to hear or learn or see anytime soon uh, simply because dealerships aren't open or they're not open having test drives right now or they want you to negotiate stuff online it's just it's all just such a huge mess and you know we're getting through it you know there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel in some way shape or form but uh i still think we're not going to be doing anything till june and at that point you know who knows what anything's going to be like uh come fall so we shall see some more news to come i think we're going to do a car buyer's guide episode coming up uh, I gotta think of a good way to do it that's not all about crossovers that come from Hyundai and Kia, because that's ultimately what it'll probably end up being, uh, which has also been interesting to note, by the way. I was watching a thing the other day from, uh, what was it? It was, uh, Redline Reviews, Alex on Autos, and, uh, the guys from TFL, we're all doing a little thing together, and they were talking about how they're getting berated with comments right now, uh, from people accusing them of taking uh, bribes from Hyundai and Kia by saying how good their cars are. Uh, I think everyone in the automotive community recognizes the fact that Hyundai and Kia are making some of the best, if not the best, cars in their respective classes at this moment in time. Does that mean that Toyota and Honda are Toyota and Honda don't make things as good as what they used to anymore? No that just means that Hyundai and Kia are doing that much better than everybody else and that's also part and parcel with the fact that Hyundai and Kia are coming out with brand new cars right now uh Honda Toyota uh Nissan so many other brands uh they've had largely the same lineup for the last 3 to 5 years they're going to be replacing those cars soon there's a good chance they're going to leapfrog Hyundai and Kia in some respects Um, but it's an arms race, and Hana and Kia have the upper hand right now, uh, because they make everything in-house and they learn from each other, like I said, up at the top of the show. So, yeah, anyway, buyer's guide, try not to talk about those brands too much, uh, we'll see what happens. Well, anyway, guys, I hope you are staying safe, I hope you're making good decisions, I hope you are washing your hands and not breaking the law in your state and or territory. Uh, so if we've got another episode in the chamber, maybe we'll see you later this week. Otherwise, guys, we'll see you next week on the next episode of the Salvage Title podcast.